0: There, there has to be a reason behind why they're doing something like this. I think that we all know that. But the argument from the other side is, oh, well, you're not looking at the bigger picture. And I mean, I, I say that like as a UX designer, as somebody that disagrees with dark patterns wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. I can still recognize that the argument that, that my profession is making against something like this is weak right
1: now. And, and it's, this does not feel right. (laughs) Yes, It's something that it's like,
0: we, we as UX designers know Uh that it doesn't feel right and that it's not the right thing to do. But until we can tie it to metrics that are going to speak the same language as the people that are putting these dark patterns into place, we're not going to get anywhere. And the tough thing that we may actually have to accept is that sometimes dark patterns work.
2: Hi everybody, welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a growth hacker at HubSpot. I'm Austin,
0: I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. And
1: I am Matt's also, surprise surprise, a growth hacker at HubSpot.
2: I am very surprised. (laughs) Uh, Today we're going to be talking about dark patterns, um, specifically within the context of an article that was written about LinkedIn.
0: Yeah, so if you're not familiar with what a dark pattern is, it's basically just a user interface that was designed to deliberately trick users into taking an action or or purchasing something without their prior knowledge.
2: Uh, Austin, you know the most about this article and you even wrote a response. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and um, yeah, go for it, man.
0: Yeah, so I I think that, we've seen that, you know, with large tech companies like LinkedIn, they're, they're always on, on the cutting edge of like different ways to, to leverage their audience and to pull in additional people through their site. And LinkedIn has always had a unique way of doing this where yeah. um, what, the, what they've, basically what they've been able to do is leverage their current users to pull in additional users to their site. So, um, and there was a really interesting article that came out recently uh, on Medium about this where they were uh, discussing the dark patterns that LinkedIn is using to uh, in its user acquisition tactics. So, basically, uh, this would kind of fall under that category of user acquisition strategies that's a little bit on the the sketchier and riskier side from a ux standpoint but could potentially actually be a good growth standpoint depending on how the actual data pans out and everything like that and just to kind of explain it to people so that they know exactly what it is that we're dealing with basically what what linkedin has done is at multiple times throughout your signup flow they are prompting you to give them your email address despite the fact that you've already given them your email address but it just appears like they're asking for your email address again, and they wanna sync your contact book so that you can basically find more people on the LinkedIn network to add as connections and to bring into your friends list or whatever. But the reality is what they're actually doing, and they explain this deeper down into the site, but they don't make it intuitively obvious throughout the signup flow, is that they're actually um, taking your address book and emailing all of the users in your address book that are not already LinkedIn members and they're emailing them on your behalf. So your friends in your address book that aren't on LinkedIn, they're going to be getting emails from you saying, Hey, come to LinkedIn and you have no idea that this is actually happening unless you really dig into what it is that LinkedIn is doing. But the sketchier thing, aside from the fact that they are prompting you with this multiple times throughout the signup flow, I mean, I'm talking like three, Mm -hmm. five times depending on what flow you go through. Um, and they're not telling you exactly what it is that it's gonna do.
2: The article said eight, like he said up to eight times. Right, Before you yeah. even get to your first, like fill out your profile page.
0: That's, yeah, so he he went through like basically all of the possible times that you could possibly be prompted with this. Um, he was also using a, a Gmail account, so like, they kind of, the way that they treat a Gmail account would be a little bit different than how they would treat an account. Like if you have your own domain mm-hmm. or something like that, because the Gmail accounts are super super useful to them. They're really easy to sync up into to the LinkedIn database because there's like that open API or authorization or whatever where they can constantly communicate back yeah. and forth with Google. So they're, instead of like constantly asking you to import your Outlook contacts, they're actually just constantly syncing with Google. So that's really valuable anyway. He, he even went through like, so, so this guy, he goes through the LinkedIn signup flow, gets prompted multiple times to enter his email address, doesn't do it. Every time that he would say like, I don't wanna enter my email address and have you sync my contacts, LinkedIn would pop up with another modal that would say, are you sure you're gonna miss out on the LinkedIn experience? And there would be weird things where like, the continue button was always classically on the right. And then when the modal pops up where you don't wanna enter your email address, all of a sudden the continue button is switched to the left and it's in a different color. So like weird psychological practices where then you know, like the button that actually looks like the continue button is, is the button that says, oh no, wait a second, I do wanna sync my contacts. So it's really easy for users to just accidentally sync their contacts. Yeah,
2: the language in that modal um, is purposely vague as well. So the, the skip button and the continue button, if you think about it, could actually mean either activity. So you're, you're literally guessing as to mm-hmm. well, how do I not do this? and it's not made clear on purpose.
0: Right, yeah. And then, even if you don't do it, like you sign up and everything, then you'll get emails from Mm -hmm. LinkedIn, like, oh, go ahead and and sync your account. You'll log into the account, and and you'll have banners that pop up. Oh, you're not getting the full LinkedIn experience. Sync your email address, all of this stuff. So there's all of these kind of dark and sketchy ways that that LinkedIn is, is trying to pull these Different contact databases, and and it, it, they already have your information. It's just a matter of getting you to authorize them mm-hmm. to pull your entire contact list. It's
1: pretty aggressive.
0: It's aggressive, it's right? Very aggressive.
1: Let's let's take a step back though and ask the question: Why is LinkedIn so aggressive with trying to get you to invite people?
0: Right. So that's I, I think that I think that like the 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 reason that we would extrapolate from this is that they have somehow determined that this is a super effective user acquisition strategy and that they can make a lot of money
1: from. I would argue that it's actually a little bit more than just user acquisition. Mm -hmm. I would actually argue that LinkedIn realized early on that their products becomes more valuable the more people actually use it, right? If you're on LinkedIn and no one else is on LinkedIn to connect with, that's a crappy experience. Interesting. So they have that. Um, to try and to to motivate them to do this?
2: Now, motivate, I was hoping you'd say that. Motivate is a very interesting word that you would use there because it's not motivation. They at LinkedIn know that, and it's just like Facebook, where Facebook pushes very hard for you to find friends. Sure, sure. They don't ask you to sync your contact list in a sneaky way, but they basically fill up your feed um, with people that you might know because they have all this information that makes it really easy for them to suggest this stuff. And they do it until you hit like, Thirty maybe. There's like a, there's an actual threshold that once you hit that, you're gonna stick around on Facebook because it's gonna be yep. most statistically likely to be valuable for you. Yes. LinkedIn is very similar. It's a network. Like it, it, they describe themselves as a network. So without that network, it's pretty much useless. But they're not motivating you. They're not giving you a reason to do it. They're just kind of tricking you into doing that.
1: Yes. However, sub. Some- subsequently, you will receive more value from LinkedIn yeah. the more people that you invite that you know to use LinkedIn.
2: I guess that that's just the, inherent the overall words. question, yes. and this is a, a thing that we're you know really trying to hone in on during a podcast like this, mm-hmm. is is that worth it? Is it worth it to leave a bad taste in somebody's mouth by forcing them to do something or tricking them into doing something that you're like, oh, well this is for your own good, mm-hmm. but they feel like they're out of control or they've been deceived in the process, you know? Yeah, Um, but
1: but also think about, so not only does having you invite your friends, hopefully help with retention and help with engagement with their product, it's also helping a lot for virality, obviously. Think about that P-value that they have. For every user that they acquire through whatever marketing channel that that they have, they're probably acquiring not just like a couple users, They're probably acquiring maybe tens, maybe even hundreds of users, depending on how many people actually are tricked into connecting their inbox. Most products will have maybe a p-value of 0.1, 0.05. You know, that's not too bad. That means that for every single user that you acquire, that person is going to invite about 0.5 more people, which would Mm -hmm. mean if you have 20 users that you acquire, you're going to get one viral user out of it. LinkedIn is probably getting way more out of that because of this mechanism that they're using. Yeah. So there's a legit business reason for them to do it.
0: Yeah. So I think that that's that's kind of the tough thing with this debate, right? Is that none of us have access to LinkedIn's data,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so we don't know the actual reasoning behind why they're doing this. But we do know that they're a top tech company, and that there's yes. a lot of smart people working for that company. So kind of what you get is two different sides of the argument, which were presented in this article. Actually, one specific side was presented in the article, and that's the UX side, and then. Another side that, that people have been discussing and that I, I think we've all been thinking about is the growth side. Mm-hmm. So uh, in this particular article, the, the guy that wrote it was saying, you know, I, I found out about this after I had been on LinkedIn for months and I realized it was emailing my friends behind my back. And so I left LinkedIn, you know, and that's his argument is like when you do these things to deceive people, they'll you'll start to have a bad reputation. You're going to erode your brand. People aren't going to trust you as much. Whatever, and they're going to leave. They're not going to want to use your product. I think we've sure. all seen cases where that's happened. Like where you know, there's been a product that was respected, and then it was found out that they were you know mining data or, mm-hmm. or selling information or whatever. And and all of a sudden, it's like they're you don't ever hear about them anymore.
1: So I have a question for you on that. Mm-hmm. If Joe invites his entire contact list unknowingly to him, and Let's say twenty of his friends accept the invitation that he gets that he sends out. Joe is, is pissed about this and says, Screw LinkedIn, that's not cool, man, and then leaves.
0: They lose one. They lose one, 20. but they
1: gain twenty. Right.
2: So that's do those twenty so what have to sing the their
1: this? Yes, maybe they do. And so then maybe, they all leave.
2: And then you basically are trying, you are fighting churn. It's like you're you're running away from the sandstorm. And as long as you keep, you know, getting more and more people, your company's going to grow. And you're like, screw those guys who keep leaving. Uh-huh. They invite 20 people apiece. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like having, uh, I don't know, like having kids like, a month before you're dead, you know what I mean? You're just like, ah, I survived, like whoo, my family's gonna move on, you know? Um, But like one thing goes wrong and like that whole thing falls apart and those lines start to to fall apart. I'm sure that's
1: exactly how LinkedIn's thinking of that. Yeah, one thing that I thought was really
2: interesting about the article too is he did specifically say that he left LinkedIn because of this. Mm -hmm. And then he said, but I came back because they seem to have fixed some of this stuff. And it's like, Mm -hmm. apparently like the core idea of LinkedIn is valuable enough and maybe he's being pinged a lot by his friends, then he doesn't realize that they're the same, you know, kinds of things happening uh, to him through, you know, other people. Like maybe that, that social pressure effect is causing him to still want to come back, even though he thinks that this stuff sucks, you know? Um, There is like the pros and cons about that is do, is your product still good enough that people will just kind of excuse all this bad behavior too? Um, LinkedIn might still be in that position. They kind of, Although uh, that might be another conversation, there's a lot of things that they're they're trying now um, because they are, you know, a big old giant, and their growth is starting to slow down. Um, there's only so much more they can do at this point.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think that what this points to is kind of an age-old debate uh, that that has existed ever since the UX designer has gone up against the marketer or the CEO or mm-hmm. whatever, and that's. This debate of is it worth it to put these practices into place that we can immediately tie to bottom line metrics? Like we know that LinkedIn can immediately tie these dark patterns mm-hmm. to user acquisition, to revenue, uh, to what whatever it is that they're mm-hmm. they're measuring. They I guarantee you that the, the piece that you were talking about with the p-value, that they know mm-hmm. exactly how many people on average they're getting. As, you know from this program yes and then the other side of the debate is like okay um, that's great that like you know so that's like the growth side it's like look at all of this stuff that we're getting out of this mm-hmm. but then if you take it from the UX side that argument is like oh well you know um, people don't like that and they leave mm-hmm. And that could be very true, right? Like it could actually be eroding brands. It could actually be pissing users off. It could be yes. slowly destroying LinkedIn, slowly making LinkedIn irrelevant. Yes. But until we can tie those dark pattern practices to hardline metrics, the same hardline metrics that the growth tactic is being tied to, where we're saying, okay. This dark pattern is working right now for the immediate future. And over the course of the next six months, we won't see any negative change. However, over the course of the next five years, we will see a net negative revenue impact or we will see a net negative uh, usage impact or or retention impact or whatever. We're basically, what you're saying is this growth tactic that we're using Mm -hmm. is eventually going to hurt us more than it's helped us. And we can prove it using X, Y, and Z metrics.
1: Yes. So there's two big questions I have associated with that. Mm -hmm. And then I have one potential solution. The first two questions are, can you prove how much revenue you're actually losing by using this tactic? And two, can you propose a solution that's going to enable users to invite just as many users, but in a a very authentic way that's not going to piss them off? Mm -hmm. And I think an interesting thing that I would hope LinkedIn has done, and I'd be very curious to see the results on, would be a long-term retention experiment that essentially takes a group of 5,000, 10,000 users that they've acquired, which is is nothing to a a company like LinkedIn with the user base that they have, and just not do these dark patterns on them. And after two years, see how many of those 10,000 users are still around and then counterweigh that against how many users they could have potentially made off of those users, those retaining users, had they used these tactics. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good way to control it and that's, that's I'm thinking in similar terms. Like mm-hmm. there, there has to be a reason behind why they're doing something like this. I think that we all know that. But the argument from the other side is, oh, well, you're not looking at the bigger picture. And I mean, I, I say that like as a UX designer, as somebody that disagrees with dark patterns wholeheartedly, mm-hmm. I can still recognize that the argument that, that my profession is making against something like this is weak right now. And, and
1: it's, this does not feel right. (laughs) Yes.
0: It's something that it's like we, we as UX designers know Uh that it doesn't feel right and that it's not the right thing to do. But until we can tie it to metrics that are going to speak the same language as the people that are putting these dark patterns into place, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. And the tough thing that we may actually have to accept is that sometimes dark patterns work.
1: Ooh. Getting spooky
2: there, right? This is when you guys shut off the (laughs) podcast.
0: That's something I think that that's something that cannot exit the realm of possibility. Sure. You know. Sure. And and until we can perform like a a long term study. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way that you're going to be able to prove something like this, Yes. where you can say, okay, let's take X amount of cases where, you know, where we have, you may have to do it on like a company level, like X amount of companies that literally were, that were all in the same space and five of them literally never used a dark pattern like Mm -hmm. this. And then five all use dark patterns and then see where they are Mm -hmm. at the end of it. Because it's like, that's ultimately what the argument comes down to is, oh, if you do this stuff, you're going to piss users off enough, or you're going to, kill your reputation enough, or you're gonna frustrate people enough to where they stop using
1: you. Yes, I think it's really important. If you were to run a long-term analysis on this, if you had an experiment, uh, you're not gonna be able to just look at how many end users you have. You have to look at something deeper like engagement. Because it's really really gonna be difficult to offset the massive number of users that are gonna come in through that viral channel there. Right, Mm -hmm. but the question is, how much of those users actually contributing to your products, and how engaged are they? Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. And so now, I feel like the question is, what would you do about this?
0: I think that like my answer Mm
1: -hmm.
0: from the the only the only solid answer, I I have a couple answers. Like this is this is something that I get asked a lot Mm -hmm. as a general question. It's something that we talked about last week. Sure. Um, and I'm still trying to formulate the proper answers for stuff like this. I will tell you that the only way that in every scenario the the fight against dark patterns will win, the only way we're ever going to get to a point like that is is when we can tie the dark pattern to the metrics that I was talking about. Do you feel about. like
1: it's that black and white though? Is it literally you can have and use dark patterns or you can't because that's naughty? Or is it, let's scale back slightly and see what happens? Mm
0: -hmm. I think that's a good point. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it should be, it should be said that there is a very, very fine line between something that is just an aggressive growth tactic Mm -hmm. and something that's a dark pattern. Okay. 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 So an aggressive growth tactic may piss some users off at certain times. For example, a modal is an aggressive growth tactic okay that's not a dark pattern though because you're not confusing somebody into giving you their email address under a false pretense
1: I think that the key difference and correct me if I'm wrong is Mm -hmm. is how you prime the user Mm -hmm. in LinkedIn's case they're priming the user for them to think that they're just going through some stupid install flow that they've done a million times and they're not thinking about the consequences of that next button that they're constantly clicking Mm -hmm. whereas with some annoying growth tactics and at least tell the user what they're about to be doing and why.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. This so like there's nothing wrong with directing people's attention. Like that's sure. obviously not a growth pattern. Uh, not, I mean, not a dark pattern. It is a growth pattern. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it's it like the bait and switch. Like which is pretty much uh, is that what we would call this one? That's exactly it. It would be a bait and switch. Yep. Like that's even not in UX. Like it's it's morally. Uh, dubious, like you just you wouldn't want to, or at least in my opinion, like I don't know, like there, it, it is kind of black and white.
1: But the question, Jeff, if I said, okay, you can't do Bane switch. Yeah. However, if you do decide to do it, you're going to be making several million dollars a year doing it. Are you going to be like, uh yeah. no, I just can't do that, man. That I, I, I just doesn't
2: feel right. Or are you got to take the money. I'm not an investor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't okay, know. <laughs> so so getting back
0: to the sure, to what sure. you asked me about the answer yes. for something like this, how how do you actually prove that this is a bad thing, or how do you create an environment where a dark pattern is unacceptable?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, or, or as a UX designer going into a company that you know maybe previously hasn't done UX, or maybe you want to change the culture of UX, mm-hmm. how do you instill that dark patterns are a terrible practice? in today's climate when we can't completely tie the dark pattern to yes. the negative impact on revenue or retention or whatever and yeah. the only answers that i've been able to come up with and they're pathetic and and so this is this is where this is like my call to action to the ux community is first off if you have an answer better than mine email me or twitter me or something like that so that we can talk about this but second i'm because i'm betting that you don't have a better answer Try to think about this and figure out how do we actually take these practices and tie them to these hardline metrics because that's the only way that we're going to get respect in this argument. But so with that given circumstance, my only answer, there's two answers that I have. The first answer is work with people that just get it. When you go to a company, when you're starting to work with a company and you're interviewing, or when you know when when if say that you're in an agency setting and you have a new client that's coming on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the better example is actually the interview. When you're in that interview, a lot of the time what we think of like employee interviews is like, oh, I want to do as much as I can to possibly impress this company, whatever. And we never ask the company questions. We never interview the company. You need to interview the company and figure out if they're a company that you actually want to work with and, and if they're going to be doing something like this that you mm-hmm. disagree with. Because if in your heart you know, that, or from previous experience or whatever, you know that a dark pattern it has a negative impact on the end result of the product or or the company or whatever, then you don't want to be working with people that aren't going to understand that. So the first thing is work with people that understand where you're coming from and what you're trying to do and respect your perspective and are willing to yield to that. Yes. Um, And then the second piece is actually what we talked about last week, where you can implement, user or customer happiness uh checkpoints into your product or your website that will kind of gauge a little bit more of that less tangible effect Mm -hmm. that your your design or your practices or whatever could be having on the user base and these things the things that i'm thinking of are net promoter score system uh or system usability score, uh, single ease question, those types of things where you're, you're basically prompting your users with a question that says, you know, how likely would you be to promote our product or sure. whatever and determining how happy are they using your product. And the benefit of doing something like that is that it becomes a metric that you can optimize for, like we talked about last week, where these are predictive metrics for those other metrics that the dark patterns Are affecting so you measure NPS it's a predictor for revenue and retention and churn and engagement and whatever Mm -hmm. and then you can begin to tie the dark pattern to the metrics that it's currently pushing and you can figure out on the flip side like on the UX side how is this potentially going to negatively impact this along the way because you may see as soon as you put that dark pattern into place an uptick in user acquisition or an Mm -hmm. uptick in um, revenue, Mm -hmm. ad revenue in the case of LinkedIn. Uh, More users, more ad revenue, whatever. So you may see an uptick in these bottom line metrics. And then you run an NPS survey and you see, oh, before we did the dark pattern, we had a net 60% promoter score, right? And then after we, like a couple months after we saw this decline and we had a 30% net promoter score.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That is a predictor for what could potentially happen down the line. Those are the t- only two answers that I have. Sure. If you guys have anything else to add yeah. on that. I'm it
2: sounds uh, as, um, well, we've discussed not on these podcasts, but um, it's like my gut reaction is, you know, go with the qualitative, you know, and that's, that's mm-hmm. where those promoter scores kind of tried to link actual numbers to those qualitative um, right. you know, the, the qualitative data that you're, you're getting, and um, there aren't too many other ways of doing that. Like, that's pretty much it as far as we know. I would disagree with
1: that. Yeah. I think that there is always, or at least almost always, a quantitative way to handle this kind of thing. Besides? So I would start with questions. I would start with, okay, how can we break this thing down into components that are manageable? Because that's how you solve a really challenging thing, right, you have to break it down. Uh, So what I would first ask, you have to know LinkedIn stats, right? Mm. You have to have that quantitative data that LinkedIn has. So you have to know first and foremost, okay, how many users are coming in through this dark pattern? For every user that signs up, do they have 20 users that come in? That's That's a number they have to know. The next number that you have to know is how many users that we use this dark pattern on retain and what does their engagement look like and then the third number they have to know is how engaged are the users that come in through those viral invitations and i would argue that if you can take small incremental steps through quantitative experiments that show you can actually make your users more engaged and you can improve their retention by getting them to invite their friends in a non-sketchy way, then that's a benefit. However, you're gonna not bring in quite as many users, but the users that they will bring in are better quality. Mm -hmm. If you can start to move the pattern into that direction, you're gonna make real difference.
0: Yes, I think that that's like, when we talk about qualitative versus quantitative in the sense, the reason that UX designers know Mm -hmm. that dark patterns are, in the grand scheme of things detrimental is because of the qualitative data that they've collected. Mm -hmm. They've done user testing, they've done user interviews, whatever. They've gone to school for this stuff. They know that those patterns are bad and anybody can look at the qualitative data and and know that that that's not something that people like. However, we're not speaking in terms of qualitative data in this particular argument because we're up against quantitative numbers. So that's where where you have to take that qualitative data and turn it into a quantitative form or collect quantitative data to somehow be able to compare those two different numbers.
2: Imagine the scenario, like going off of Matt's example, imagine a scenario where your company is just starting to explore dark patterns and up to this point, you've got all of that data about retention Mm -hmm. and invitations and you add this dark pattern in one place. Let's say it's syncing that contact book. Mm -hmm. And the behavior stays pretty much the same for everybody else. Like they they get through, and because there's no other dark patterns and the service is great, but they had to go through that one at the beginning, you don't see, it doesn't like shut people down. They're not like, Oh, like this ruined my whole experience. Like, because it was like one of the first things, and they kind of went through it and they're like, all right, that was confusing. And then their behavior is fine for the rest because they never have to walk into that. Does that mean that that dark pattern was okay? You know, y- you see an increase in your acquisitions through that sure. virality, but you don't see a real drop off in behavior because your service is great. So I'm wondering if that kind of thing might even open the door for, like, well, we can get away with a few more of these. It's you know, how well you can hide it. Yeah, in a
1: sense. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. It's an interesting question. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah.
2: Because your, all of your quantitative data looks pretty good in that case. Yes. You know, you can't, I bet you that dark pattern would just stay there, you know? I, I don't <laughs> even, I bet you, you would even go, eh, you know? People aren't, like if you do like the net promoter score. Sure. And people are like okay with your, you know that's a dark pattern, but everything else is great. And that promoter score is pretty high. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you might not even think about going back to fix it because everybody's happy all across the chain. Yes. You know? I think it's worth yeah. experimenting with, right? I I I, I
1: get what
0: you're saying. Okay. I think that an inherent element of the dark pattern though is that it has a noticeable effect on right. the end user.
2: So it's not a dark enough pattern is what you're saying. Like
0: that <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what it is. But I mean like it's a good. really a really good example of a dark pattern. Like an extreme. If if you want to learn about dark patterns, buy an airline ticket, because any airline site that you go to, like seriously, go to American Airlines, go to you know U.S. Air. They're the same airline and they both suck. Go on their website, try to buy a ticket, and you're going to be littered with dark patterns throughout the whole process. Uh, A a really good example is like the the insurance upgrade. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, oh, you know, trying to get people to to upgrade for insurance, trying to get people to um, upgrade for a rental car sale. And what you get at the end of this is that people accidentally buy insurance or they accidentally buy a rental car or whatever, and it has a real impact on them. But the company still got the money from that. True. Right?
2: It reminds me that there's a, a really great example of this where there was an opt-out for insurance on one of these sites, but it was in a select box surrounded by locations. So it was like, um, the prompt was basically like, pick which location you want your insurance for, something along the lines of that. It was completely unrelated to an opt-out. And then just strewn in, not even alphabetically, just thrown in randomly was just like, I don't want insurance. And (laughs) you would never, ever notice that. You might even skip over that box completely because you're like, I don't need it, like I'm not gonna click this, I don't need to find a location for it. Um, that's like, that is textbook dark pattern yeah. right there. It's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely yeah. true.
0: So yeah, I think that that's like, that again, it's it's the matter of like what you the example that you're giving with the small scale company that's like, dabbling with dark patterns or whatever, (laughs) and then they find out that they don't actually, that the users don't notice, or it doesn't negatively affect the user experience, Sure, that probably walks the line of just an aggressive growth tactic. Sure,
1: perhaps. I think again, what you have to tie this back to, you have to know that one core metric that you can describe about your products that you can tie back to revenue. Mm -hmm. For someone like LinkedIn, It would be you have to have some kind of thing that you can call an engagement point of some kind. And that can be a cumulative uh, sum of all kinds of different actions a user can take. So an engagement point could be how many profiles did this one user hit? How many times did they search for someone? How many times did they invite someone? How many messages did they send? How many times did they engage with the product? that delivered value that you can tie directly back to revenue.
2: Yeah, this definitely uh, feeds into the benefit of breaking your business down into different, like you basically have your KPIs and you just split those up and what makes up those KPIs and what could affect those. And you can, uh, there's some great tools out there um, we have internally, but uh, I'm sure there are other ones where you can actually model those visually against your analytics and you can see, all right, well we did this thing and our KPI went you know, a couple of points down. But there's a lot of pieces that affect it. So which one of those pieces, you know, in that whole funnel tree was the one that got affected? And you can target like, oh, well, we introduced the start pattern during the sign up. And then the, their first visit, they visited, you know, 50% less profiles, like, bam, yes. there it is. Um, but the first and foremost, you have to define what all those pieces are and what feeds into it. Um, and yes. it's,
1: I don't think that you're in a position to do any qualitative or quantitative experimentation or analysis until you have those defined.
2: Right, and those can be, yes. that can be big. You should yeah, do that in a oh, computer. Absolutely. absolutely. It'll take, well there's a lot of pieces. You can group sure. them, but it depends how, how granular you want to be with something like that. Sure. That's, I feel like uh, that is a great other talk that we could have and, and how to do that effectively. It's um, very so important. keep an for, eye out for something like that. Yes,
1: it's very important for solving this problem though of how do you go to the boss at the end of the day and say, this dark pattern is bad and here's why and here's what we can do about it that's different. Okay, right, exactly. because you need to be able to run experiments that show if you slightly move away from the dark pattern, you're still gonna have, use, you're gonna have overall more engagement actions that users are taking by not having the dark pattern. Right. You have to break it down outside of how many users are we acquiring because not every user is a quality user.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah, and what is a quality user is another great question. Um, so you have to
1: keep breaking down the problem until you get somewhere that's going to actually give you yeah. some something it, of, of content. Unfortunately,
2: this isn't something that you can do when you have you know it's uh, Saturday night and you got to get this report on the desk by sure. Monday. You know, like sure. these these uh, a lot of the the effects of these patterns um, take weeks or even months to measure um, in like a real like talking about like churn. So like okay, well. You know the lifetime value of a customer is going to go down, you know, but their lifetime is you know two and a half years. Like you can't even really tell how that compares until people start actually churning off. Like it's yes. you know, and you can. There are some predictors, and um, the things that Austin talked about already um, are are predictors, but that's all they are. You I have know, a question for Austin. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's say you went to work for LinkedIn tomorrow, mm-hmm. and this is your mission to change their theme and their company culture of using these tactics, Yeah. how do you do that? You have one year to accomplish this.
0: Okay, cool. So the first thing that I would tell you is that Uh it would be irresponsible to go into the company with that as a mission because that's not my job.
2: (laughs) Just don't do that. Yeah,
0: um, like uh, that's not my job as as a UX designer is split into two categories and they don't, they shouldn't hopefully compete with each other. First, I serve the user. Second, I serve the business. They're equally important though. So I should have just said, I serve the user and the business.
1: But, but maybe you just serve good UX in this case, and you just yeah. wanna make a difference. Yeah,
0: but the thing is that you have to understand that this is this is actually a fundamental misunderstanding okay. of what UX is meant to do. Okay. And UX is not just meant to be an easy to use design. It's meant to serve the business and the business's goals as well. Sure. And I have to say, that if I were to go into LinkedIn and I were presented with conclusive evidence that said that this dark pattern was working in favor of the business, right? And that it was accomplishing all of these things and that it also wasn't working against the user and that it actually wasn't causing detriment to the user despite the fact that it's a dark pattern, then it would be my responsibility to reinforce that.
1: Ah. The thing that i would disagree with there mm-hmm. is do they have conclusive evidence yeah. that there is nothing else they can do to accomplish right so what that about would be, your principles yeah my principles yeah so so that's here. so
0: what i just gave you is like a perfect world scenario which yes. will literally never happen so <laughs> if, I, if i were actually to go into the company sure and i'm like okay they present the, just to put it into more of like a I think, an acceptable scenario than like I'm coming in with a mission just because I think that's such a terrible thing to do. Um, I were to go into the company and they were to present me with a bunch of data about the dark patterns. Mm -hmm. And and what I came out of it with is, okay, we are acquiring a lot of users, but I think based off of the data that I was given that this could be causing a lot of harm that we're not seeing, Mm -hmm. then I think that we would have to go and run a bunch of closed experiments over time to figure out what what of those KPIs these dark patterns could potentially be affecting as the user matures and as we gain new users like what you know what happens what happened to the user? that was pre-existing and we introduced this dark pattern and then what happens to the user that comes in as a result of the dark pattern and how do they behave differently and all of those things i think that you can you can get early insights on that qualitatively Mm -hmm. and then you can try to use that to guide you in a quantitative form Yep. right Mm -hmm. so my my approach would be the first thing that i'm going to do is look at the data that the company has To help me to understand if this is even an issue, because ultimately all of us sitting in this room and the dude that wrote the article and every pissed off person that commented on the article, unless they worked at LinkedIn, they don't have access to any of the data and they are effectively under informed.
1: Okay. But how about what does that do to the actual designer who's working on that? like someone who like you said you really care about good proper UX and providing mm-hmm. a good experience that doesn't piss people off.
2: Yeah, I bet it it, it tears them up on the inside. Yeah, is it, what you want to hear. Yeah, after you've been doing that
1: for a while, you are just like, "Oh god, I can't I can't do this again. Yeah. I can't like keep ripping our users off." would I mean, when you maybe. start to feel like that?
0: I I think that there there are definitely cases mm-hmm. um, where something like that would happen, you know. Uh, but I I think that the only case where that is legitimate is when you have data that's telling you Mm -hmm. that it's wrong and then your CEO or your boss or something like that is telling you to do something different. I'm sorry, I don't care how good of a designer you are. (laughs) If you have data that's telling you that it's working and that it's okay, then you need to shut the hell up and do your job. (laughs) And if you've got a feeling That it's wrong. Then what you need to do is collect the data Uh to prove that it's wrong. The only the only time where it's legitimate to to have you know this like this is this is a common theme with designers, right? It's like this angst, like oh my 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 boss, like he tells me to design shit, (laughs) and you know I'm not creatively challenged, and all of this stuff, and and I'm putting stuff out there that I'm not proud of. Okay. That's great. You go ahead and be that way if you want to. But the reality is that if if we're talking about you know, UX and growth, this is data-driven, human-centered design, right? Sure. So the key element here is if you have data that's telling your design to be a certain way, then that means that the that the design, whatever your design you're creating as a result of data, is a good design until you can prove otherwise through data. The only time when you know, like I think a situation of angst like that might be acceptable is when you have a set of data that's telling you one thing, and then somebody else is forcing you to do something otherwise through like a gut instinct or something sure. like that. So do you, do you kind of get what I'm saying here, where it's like the right way to do things? is through whatever data that you have and the wrong way to do things is, is through gut instinct in, 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 uh, in opposition of data. Yeah. Like, you know, there are certain times when I think gut instinct is acceptable, but that's only, those, those times are, are, are only existent in absence of data.
2: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, like if you can't collect data on something and you have to go with gut instinct, I think those are very rare scenarios then that's okay. However, if you're a designer that's sitting in the face of data and you're still thinking that you're creating something wrong, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you're either wrong or you need to find data to prove that you're right.
2: Sure. True. By the way, uh, for anybody listening out there, if you wholeheartedly disagree with that last like whole five minutes, (laughs) I wanna hear from you um, because- (laughs) That just got super
0: controversial.
2: (laughs) Yeah, if there are any designers out there who are like, no, I know what I'm talking about, please hit us up. Um, We definitely want to see what you have to say, and we will incorporate it in the next talk. Um, We're actually running out of time, so uh, I just wanted to throw in a couple of things that we didn't touch on. One is if you're interested in dark patterns, and knowing about all the different kinds of dark patterns, there's a really great site that's been out there for a little while called darkpatterns.org, and it organizes everything um, in one giant dark pattern. So you're never going to be able to find anything, and you're going to give them all your personal information, it's a great site. <laughs> um, it, uh, a, lot of, a lot of good videos, a lot of uh, just, it breaks it down um, into every single type and it gives everything a, a really snappy name so you can recognize these patterns. Um, and it's a growing list. So, you know, you check back every so often, you'll see more real site examples. My favorite one, by the way, is the one that got named after Mark Zuckerberg called Zuckering. Which is basically uh, Facebook's attempt to make it really hard for you to make a completely private bubble on Facebook. Like You think that you're doing things privately, but somehow it's exposed to way more people. And they, in 2010, they, they named that Zuckering, the act of sharing way more than you, than you want to. Um, check out the site. Really, really great stuff. Um, that's all I have. Do you guys have any last yeah. words before we wrap this up?
1: Interesting. How much time do we have?
2: How much time do we have? Where
1: are we at?
2: Um, we'll talk about this after. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we're running in like almost to an hour, I think. So
1: Okay, wow. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, that was, that was interesting. Thanks, guys. I think it's very important that if you're just starting out, you experiment with this stuff. You yeah. have to decide how aggressive you want to be. And you don't know what's right for your business and what's going to work until you try it. That's the message that I would leave with everyone out there.
2: Thank you very much, Matt.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Excellent.
2: All right guys. We'll uh we'll see you next time. Uh check us out. Send us those messages. We do want to hear from you. All right. Bye everybody.